0: Hello, and welcome to Biota. I'm your host, Phil Gibson. A little over 12,000 years ago, the geological epoch called the Pleistocene came to an end. The Pleistocene is commonly called the Ice Age because there was repeated formation and retreat of glaciers on Earth throughout this time. When these massive glaciers formed, the oceans were lower, and there were land connections between Asia and North America, and between North America and South America. Plants, animals, and other living things use these connections to move from one area to another. The Pleistocene was after non-avian dinosaurs had gone extinct. Big mammals, collectively called megafauna, dominated ecosystems and landscapes. But at the end of the Pleistocene, as things were getting warmer and the glaciers retreated, the big mammals went extinct. During the Pleistocene, a new group of primates originated in Africa. And by the end of the Pleistocene, Descendants of this lineage had spread across Earth. Eventually, crossing by land and by sea, they colonized North and South America. And when they arrived there, they hunted. In this episode, we will investigate the mass extinction of the mammalian megafauna in North America that occurred at the end of the Pleistocene. Because we haven't quite yet perfected time travel, I've invited two guests from the Sam Noble Oklahoma Museum of Natural History to tell us about the megafauna during this time of incredible ecological change and also tell us about some of the tools used by people who lived then.
1: Hi, my name is Tom Luziski. I'm head of exhibits at the Sam Noble Museum. We are the state's natural history museum located here on the uh, southern portion of the OU campus just off of Chautauqua Avenue.
0: Since we can't go to the museum together, I asked Tom to describe some of the exhibits they have of the Pleistocene megafauna that lived in Oklahoma. As the exhibits at the Sam Noble Museum and other museums demonstrate, there were different, somewhat strange animals walking around during the Pleistocene. I I
1: can tell you about the big ones. I I, I, I can't remember all those the small ones. Uh, we have uh, a mammoth and uh, the, the interesting about the mammoth is when it was in, a, in the old building uh, there on campus, it had a different skull on it. So it would fit under the ceiling and, and ours is fit with the actual correct skull for, for the beast. And uh, so we, we've got a, a bigger place and we could actually have the, the, the correct skull on it. Next to it is a gomphothere, which is just a crazy beast, probably the, one of the, the weirdest things. Uh, and, and that's what, so like you say, the dinosaurs, they get all the good press. and But there is just some astoundingly weird creatures in the Pleistocene that, just kind of defy um, imagination in a way, and the gomphother is one of those. It's kind of like an elephant. It's well, it's kind of like a lot of things. Uh, it's got this weird, huge lower jaw that's a shovel, and it definitely had a, had a trunk, and it was probably using that to pry up brush and use the trunk to draw it into the mouth. But, it, but it's not as big as an elephant. It's not as big as a bison, even probably. It's much you know squatter and lower to the ground. Uh, and, and more exciting, there's a Smilodon, uh, otherwise known as the saber-toothed tiger. And uh, it's a, arguing with a, uh, a, a cave bear over a uh, bison latifrons corpse. And uh, that, that's an actual skeleton as opposed to casts.
0: Here's one really important point from what he just said. Because the Pleistocene wasn't that long ago, geologically speaking... Some of the animal remains, like the bison latifrons he mentioned, well, they are still bones and not fossils. Because of that, biologists can sometimes extract DNA from the bones and use the genetic data to answer some really interesting questions. To learn more about that, I've asked a researcher from the Sam Noble Museum to join us and tell us a little bit
2: more. I am Dr. Haley Lanier. I am an assistant professor of biology and an assistant curator of mammals at the Sam Noble Oklahoma Museum of Natural History.
0: Zoologists define megafauna as animals weighing more than 100 pounds or about 45 kilograms. But during the Pleistocene, think even bigger. I'll let Dr. Lanier tell us what makes the Pleistocene megafauna so special.
2: Um, The megafauna themselves are basically a lot of the biodiversity that you know now, but on steroids, they were in more places, they were doing more things, they were doing things ecologically that can be similar to what we've seen. And then some things that were just like wildly different, like the giant ground sloths that we used to have here.
0: Wait a minute, sloths? Those are tropical species now. I saw tree sloths when I was doing research in Costa Rica. Does she mean that sloths once lived in Oklahoma?
2: Yes, they used to be in Oklahoma, they used to actually make it all the way north to Alaska. So we think of sloths as being really tropical, hanging out in trees, eating leaves, and these ground sloths we would have found all across North America. um, Also probably browsing a lot of leaves out of trees, but if you go back far enough, there were giant sloths that were doing things like swimming in the ocean. There's just a huge diversity of of extinct sloths out there that that are just no longer found now. I mean, I, I I can picture a mammoth, I can mentally put hair on an elephant and say, aha, that's what a mammoth would look like. I think that would be cool. But the ground sloths, and even the, with the pictures, I just feel like, would it look like a bear? Would it look like a sloth? What would its hair be like? The sloth we have now um, I've done scanning electron microscopy of their hairs and they've got little pits in their hairs, which, um, which algae live in because they've got uh, uh, mutualism with the algae on their bodies and, and would, would giant ground sloths have pits in their hairs? I don't know. I just I think that that would just be really, really interesting to see a ground sloth.
0: Okay, I'm convinced it would be cool to see a ground sloth. I asked Dr. Lanier to describe other Pleistocene megafauna that we might have seen in central Oklahoma, maybe walking by where the museum stands now.
2: I mean, we we would have had mammoths um, or mastodons down here. We um, So we would have seen sloths, we would have seen lots of um, bison, we would have seen things like the American cheetah and the American lion, um, which we don't have here anymore, but are our cousins of um, the cheetah and the lion that we have and that we can think of in Africa. So just a much more diverse range of animals, um, dire wolves, saber-toothed cats, all sorts of just amazing mind-blowing organisms that we just, we don't have here anymore.
0: So that made me wonder, where did these megafauna come from? Did they evolve here or did they migrate from somewhere else?
2: It depends on the species. Many species, um, some of them evolved in Asia and, and came across the Bering Land Bridge into North America and then would have had sort of a separate evolution here in North America. Others may have been ones that evolved here. And so in a great example, that would be the dire wolf. So those Game of Thrones fans you have out there would be familiar with dire wolves. They were a real species that we had here. So like the wolves, you know now, but much bigger and, and uh, wolf species that would have specialized on eating a lot of the other megafauna it was found with. Now, um, a paper came out a couple of weeks ago, where they uh, looked at the genomes of dire wolves And they found that um, they'd previously thought that maybe they're just bigger cousins of the wolves we have now. And that's not the case. They're not closely related to the wolves we have. Now you have to go outside of everything that we know as is, is Canis, the genus that wolves are in, and this group is sister to that. So people are starting to propose that they resurrect an old name from, from, the 19, uh, from 1918 to uh, new, to rename this genus to represent just how different it is. So this group would have evolved here, doing wolf-like things, basically being wolves, but, um, but a separate group of, of dog relatives, the things that we know of was wolves now, dogs, coyotes, that sort of thing came in, and and probably helped to displace them that along with other other changes.
0: Followers of this podcast know I'm a huge fan of dogs. But to be fair, I have to ask about the cats too.
2: Yeah. So I mean the big cat we have now, um, the, the really big one we'd think of in North America would be like the, the mountain lion. And um and it looks like looking at again genetics from from these Pleistocene megafauna, the American cheetah, which just superficially looking at its skeleton, looks so much like a um, like an African cheetah. Um, this uh, this American cheetah looks like it's actually a cousin of the mountain lion, and not at all closely related with the uh, with the the cheetah that we have and know from Africa. So this is a species that would have um, that would have converged on the same morphology. So fast running not a lot of um uh, not quite as much pouncing mostly running down its prey and we see uh, and, and and in this case we think its prey was partly things like pronghorn antelope which we know now are much much faster than every other predator that they have out there so the fact that we see sm- fast pronghorn antelope is is probably partly a result of this american cheetah that would have been preying on them back in the pleistocene we lost the cheetah we kept the antelope
0: let's summarize there were some major differences between the big mammals alive then and the ones we see now. But also, there were some similarities. Scientists use data from bones and DNA and other sources to understand how the species alive then are related to species alive now. Scientists can combine that information with what we know from studying species that are alive right now to understand the different roles these extinct species played in their ecosystems. So, in Oklahoma, there would have been some amazing creatures that are similar to, but still unlike anything we would see today. This leads to my next question for Dr. Lanier. Where do scientists think the megafauna went?
2: So uh, most of the other North American megafauna, um, it's anywhere from 33 to 38 genera of megafauna, um, have all died out. And, And this question of where they all went has been just hotly debated for many years. So I think there may not be just one answer, right? And people people have done some really sophisticated modeling on this because if it's if it's over if it's overkill, right? You would find um, a lot of the bones of those species associated with kill sites, and we see that for some species. You would find that um, uh, that those species began to decline at the point where humans begin to show up. We've got strong evidence of humans. without a lot of humans there, you wouldn't expect a, a strong decline. And when we fit those models, um, we scientists, not we, me necessarily. Uh, what we find is that, um, that for some species, that overkill hypothesis fits really well. So for mammoths and mastodons, overkill fits quite well. Um, but then for other species like the woolly rhino that we had in, in Eurasia, it looks like probably overkill isn't the best explanation. And that might actually be a case where um, a decline in that species may have been more likely related to climate change. And less likely related to human to humans coming into contact, but I think that I think there's very strong support that for many species, overkill is a good fit. Um, the idea that maybe species uh, became very ill from um, from diseases brought by humans, it's. I'm not sure that I, I, I see a lot of evidence for that. I and mean, for one thing, it's a difficult thing to prove, but we're getting more and more DNA evidence that gives us information on, um, on the population of a species. So you can look within a species, you can use something called coalescent theory and figure out using um, either recent, recent individuals or um, uh, ancient samples and reconstruct something about the population size of the species. If species in North America were largely wiped out due to say, diseases brought by humans, there's no reason to expect, I mean, these are really different species, right? There's no reason to expect that the diseases brought by humans would sort of only affect large animals. So you'd expect the same sort of signal of decline in small animals. And I think that we don't see that sort of concomitant decline across lots of groups, be them large or small. This is mainly a size-specific phenomena. And diseases aren't size-specific. So I think, I think that, that, you know, you could, there may be cases where diseases we have brought have made some animals ill, but I don't think that there's a very good case that I've seen made in the literature that suggests that it was primarily disease. The hypothesis that I think holds the most water for many species is what Tim Flannery calls the black hole hypothesis. So it's it's uh, the idea that maybe many of the megafauna uh, that went extinct disappeared into the black hole between the nose and chin of our ancestors. And so people might also call it the overkill hypothesis.
0: Okay, this brings us to an immensely important point, so let's take a little side trip here. During the Pleistocene, a new lineage called the hominids had entered the game of life. Unlike their other primate relatives, this new type of organism walked upright. Eventually, a new species called Homo sapiens. That's us. They would evolve in Africa and eventually make their way from Asia into North America during the Pleistocene. Standing and walking upright gave this new species some incredible advantages and let it do things that its ancestors just couldn't. One thing in particular that this new lineage could do, and they got really good at it, is that they could throw things. And the ability to throw things would be an important skill, especially when this new species got hungry. In addition to being the head of exhibits at the museum, Tom is also an award-winning boomerang thrower. He has some serious practical knowledge of the subject of throwing. I asked him to tell us about throwing and give us some insights on what it would be like as a prehistoric hunter and the tools that they would use to hunt by throwing things at their prey.
1: You know, I I will not say I'm an expert. I will say I'm an enthusiast. So anybody out there that wants to refute anything I'm saying, please do. Throwing things is a very human endeavor. If, If you look at primates, uh, like chimpanzees, they're capable of throwing, but not accurately and not well. And you know they were strong. They'll tear your limbs off, man. You know, so they ought to be great at throwing, but they're just not set up for it as far as their shoulder structure. They're more for the, the brachiating and, and the swinging from things, which humans are lousy at. And at some point in time, you know, we we started developing as a species in this this act of throwing becomes more and more important. I mean, can you imagine, like, what is your just lamest, stupidest throw, and what could you possibly do with that? Let's say, uh, you know, you're one of these folks that have never had experience throwing, and you're really lame at it. Uh, Well, you could certainly scare carrion birds off of a kill with it. And so you don't have to be good at it, but that to me, it was probably some of the first throwing not to actually kill something, but to, to scare something away. And, it, and so that, you know, predates so many things. Uh, and, and yeah, as humans, we, we try to get better at things. We see the value in things and, uh, it, uh, and our, our brain starts developing that area area and sees the possibilities. Um, uh, and you know, there are stones and then, you know, uh, using just throwing a stick, you've got this moment arm that allows you to throw a stick with a uh, great force. And then that stick becomes refined, but how you grind it and, uh, and and shape it, and that turns into something else that isn't a stick anymore, but is a uh, is a throwing stick with, you know, aerodynamic properties. Uh the atlatl if if for those unfamiliar with it out there is uh it's not it look you you want to call it a spear but it's not a spear it is is very flexible it it would be just terrible for if you're cowering in a cave trying to fend off a saber-toothed tiger it'd be comical it's so flexible but i i liken it to it's like a fishing pole in a way or using that flexibility to store energy, and so you've got the dart, which is flexible, and then you have the uh, the adaladle, which is a stick with a hook on it. And unlike an arrow, which knocks on a string, your uh, your lateral or your your dart knocks on the adaladle with a little ball and socket joint. Is how a lot of folks do it. Uh, Australia does a little bit different, but the as you throw the use of this atlatl is an extension of your arm. It's this, uh, I think a class two lever, lever where you're turning a little bit of energy into a lot of energy or a, a little bit of motion. I'm sorry, a little bit of motion into a lot of motion through that extension. And then as you're throwing that, I know it's it's hard to explain without visual aids here, but the the, the atlatl flexes, and it's storing that energy. And as you get near the end of the throw, which is like a like using a fly swatter, smacking a, a, a fly on the wall, that it's storing and then it, it leaps off of the end of your atlatl with an astounding speed and power. I mean, when you see one, you're kind of like, get out. Did that really happen? And And part of that is... To me, atlatl is one of the original memes. I mean, we talk about memes as uh, you, you see something like a, a picture on, on, on Reddit or another social platform, and when you see that picture, you know what this post is going to be about. But really what a meme is, it's like a, a non-genetic conference of information. And, and what will happen is if you've never seen an atlatl, well, by gosh, I can do that. It becomes this infectious thing that you see the advantage, you can see the workings of it. Are you gonna get it right the first time? Probably not, but you know that's possible, you see the advantage in it and you can work to that end. So as a, you know, even better than a bow, I mean, a, you know, a bow's once the bow appeared, the uh, atlatl kind of disappeared, except in certain places. But, you know, making the string, that's tough. What's an atlatl? It's a stick with a hook on the end, and you're throwing a, a flexible branch with some sort of payload on the end. It is. It can be done in a, a short period of time, whittling away some stuff. And, you know, it predated the bow by something like 20,000 years. So, you know, every one of us had a had an ancestor that was really good at that or we wouldn't be here.
0: Okay, prehistoric hunters had sharpened rocks, spears, and the atlatl with its dart. I next wondered if hunters would do this on their own or if they would hunt in groups.
1: Well, uh, most definitely a team effort, which is something else that humans are pretty good at. Uh, I mean, you you can certainly bring down game alone, uh, like a a deer, rabbits, yeah, you know, but a, a, a bison bringing down a loan with an Adaladdle, that would be a, a real trick. I think, uh, you know, in the case of the calf Creek skull, maybe that did happen, but it was also a juvenile. You know, if you've ever been close to a bison, even I don't. Yeah. I i, I think anybody would be hard pressed to think that they could kill that on their own without an extremely lucky shot. So, I imagine that you know in in being in that situation and being with a bunch of people throwing an addle at the same time I mean we'll we'll go to a uh, uh you know competitions and meets where you know we'll set up a great big target and you'll have you know 30 people throwing at a single target and when that happens yeah you realize you could get a lot done so it's a uh, very much a, a a social thing in and that aspect and uh and you know, it's a, you know one of the things we do, I guess.
0: The Calf Creek skull that Tom mentioned is interesting because it shows the power of the weapons that paleo-American hunters had at their disposal. It also highlights how archeologists use projectile points to identify different prehistoric peoples.
1: I always call it the Calf Creek skull. It's got another name I could never remember, but the, the Calf Creek is the style of point that's in the skull. And this was uh, pulled out of a river bank by a ranger, I think, and it was a a bison, an old bison. It is a juvenile, uh, I, I believe. It, we might have to go back and I, I can't remember. If it's ladder Franz or Antique was, but uh, it was a juvenile skull pulled out of a, a bank. It was an, an an extinct animal, you know. And uh, there was this fragment of a of a, of a point in. It's uh, it, at the top of its skull at the base of uh, one of its horns. And it was, even though it was broken off, is identifiable as from the Calf Creek culture. And if you've seen a Calf Creek point, it is a large point, a large, uh, I want to say it's a, like a Valentine heart-shaped point. It's got that sort of proportions to it. Now, if, if you're familiar with you know, making Flint tools, uh, you you always make a biface, you're making something with two sides to it. And that's because of how the stone fractures and that's what the material asks of you. You, know, you can't make the material do what it doesn't want to do. And so regardless of the, the type of tool you're making, it always winds up a biface. And so these calf creek points, when they were found, it was pretty easy to assume that these were perhaps hunting knives. They might've been hafted on a little piece of antler and used for uh, uh, for skinning or you know, flaying, and when this was found in the skull, and then with uh, and it was confirmed with CT scans and the like. Yes, there was a a, a calf creek skull buried deep in this. It answered a few questions. It, it was a projectile point, and as a projectile point that large. It was surmised that about the only way that you could get that into the skull so deep was not just hafted on a a shaft, but put there on a a device called the dart using a tool called an atlatl or atlatl. And uh, so just this one find changed the perception of this particular object. So it's, it's, it's a remarkable find, really.
0: Let's summarize key points one more time. Archaeologists found a skull of an extinct bison species with a broken stone projectile point broken off inside of it. CT scans showed that it was a point characteristic of the Calf Creek culture. The projectile point was embedded at the base of the horns, a place where the bison skull is exceptionally thick. The only way it could have gotten there was with a weapon such as the atlatl. This shows how a little bit of additional information can give some valuable insights on how people lived in the past. So I had to ask, what does he think about humans and whether they killed off the megafauna?
1: It's possible. Uh, stuff I've been reading recently uh, it links it more to climate change, I think. But uh, it, it, uh, you know, human beings are remarkable things, but I don't know that we're
0: that remarkable in the scheme of things. Uh, I'm going to say No. So clearly there's some different opinions out there. But where do I stand on this megafauna mass extinction topic? I think it was probably a combination of several things. Remember, we were coming out of an ice age, so the changing climate would surely affect these large mammal species. Ecosystems would become warmer and drier. Growing seasons would change. Climatic patterns would shift. Change on that scale would undoubtedly have consequences for big animals. But there is also no denying that humans must have had an impact. Big things like megafauna typically reproduce slowly, and they usually don't have too many offspring at any one time. Hunting too many juveniles, which, when you think about it, might have been easier than bringing down a fully grown adult, or hunting too many reproductive-aged individuals, that could have rapid demographic impacts on a population. This could cause populations of these megafauna species to crash and then start a cascade of changes throughout the ecosystem. I'll let Dr. Lanier explain further.
2: I think some of there are some biological effects we can point to quickly in terms of of other megafauna right so humans might have been hunting mastodons but then you lose the predators that would have eaten them like short-faced bears or dire wolves that would have that would have subsisted on other megafauna but then the landscape effects are looking to be quite large as well that if you take out all the predators that that changes things like um forests versus grasslands and so if you remove things like um, mastodons and mammoths are probably doing very similar things to elephants in africa that help maintain grasslands by pushing over trees and so if you remove those that means you're going to have more tree growth and that can affect huge parts of north america and probably did and what's interesting is it also looks like there's really good evidence that it changed fire regimes so if you remove things that might have been browsing out a lot of a lot of um a lot of burnable materials, what that's going to do is it's going to leave those burnable materials and shift how often you get fires, how large those fires are, how frequent those fires are. And so, so that would have had massive ecological consequences. Species that would have relied on these species for dispersal of their seeds also would have been really challenged. And so you no longer get that sort of widespread dispersal of seeds from place to place. You'd get much more um, fragmentation of those habitats for, for those plants.
0: One of my research areas is seed dispersal, so I asked Dr. Lanier to explain further, because animal extinctions can have tremendous consequences for the plants that depend on them too.
2: So if, you, um, if you're familiar with Osage orange, I'm sure you are as a botanist, um, these uh, people also call them hedge apples. We called them monkey brains when I was a kid. They're a little bit bigger than a softball, green fruits that are sort of uh, like an almost like an orange on the outside, but you can see little bits on them. Uh, those were something that mammoths used to eat. And so whenever I see things like that, I think of them as being sort of the, uh, the, the um botanical footprints of megafauna past because we don't now have things that really specialize on those fruits the way that we used to.
0: Now, although some megafauna did go extinct in North America, others like the bison, they didn't, but it was very close. I'll let Dr. Lanier explain.
2: So, I mean, from a, a molecular perspective, it actually looks like they might have gotten really close and then survived. Um, there is some behavioral evidence that suggests maybe they changed their behaviors a little bit, that maybe they began clumping together. Um, there's also some evidence from uh, similar sized kind of smaller megafauna, um, bison, reindeer, um, caribou, if you're talking about the the wild relative of reindeer, um, maybe even muskox, it suggests that maybe in their size range, that being able to be a little bit better at reproducing might have helped uh, save them a little bit. And so I think we have some lessons in terms of thinking about conservation from looking at these animals as well, where we see that animals um, that are a little bit better at potentially reproducing slightly more quickly may also be better at, at, at withstanding uh, big environmental changes, like having a lot of humans coming in who are trying to, to kill an EU.
0: The last thing I wanted to know was what Dr. Lanier thinks we can learn from the extinction of the mammalian megafauna.
2: I think that, that it further underscores what the biological characteristics that make something prone to extinction are. Um, and I think we can look at those and say, OK, these are the, the groups of animals we need to worry about most. But I think it also, um, I mean, it's a reminder that extinction truly is forever that that you don't get a do-over with Earth. You don't get a do-over with evolution, at least not within the time periods that we know. And and that every single species that we that we wipe out, either inadvertently or you know, by our own sort of small actions, right? None of those people, none of the Folsom people, none of the Clovis people were thinking, gosh, I'd love to wipe out all the mastodons or mammoths. They're each making their own, own decision that seemed best to them at the time. Because of course, mammoths and mastodons were everywhere. And so they weren't gonna, you know, no one could imagine a time when you wouldn't have them anymore. But but you know, but each of those individual actions added up to one big collective extinction in the same way that each of our individual actions can lead up to one big collective extinction event. And and by knowing that, by being by understanding that history, we're potentially able to avoid repeating it.
0: I couldn't agree with her more. So this brings us to the end of this episode of Biota. Hopefully, this has given you some perspective on what it was like when these massive animals walked the earth. I also hope that this has helped you better understand some things about the people that lived then, too. It seems that for the mammalian megafauna and the humans, they were both responding to changes in their environment. But something important about the humans is that they were also very likely causing some of these changes in their environment, and they eventually had to respond to these changes in order to survive. When you think about it, that's really not that different from where we're at right now. This episode is part one of a multi-part series on biota. In part two, we'll meet Dr. Leland Biment. He's an archeologist that specializes on paleo-American hunting techniques. In an upcoming episode, he will tell us about his research and what it's revealed about the ancient people who survived the transition from hunting mammoths to hunting another species, bison.
1: When the mammoths went extinct, they had to divert their attentions to the next largest animal, and you hunt these bison in a different way, and one way is herding them into these traps.
0: And one more thing, he also made an incredible archeological discovery at one of these hunting sites that opened a window onto a previously unknown aspect of the lives of Paleo-Americans.
1: I was just staring at this very, very bright, white, sun-bleached skull fragment that had this brilliant red zigzag
0: line on it. I'm Phil Gibson, and thank you for listening to Biota. I want to thank my guests, Tom Luziski, and also Dr. Haley Lanier from the Sam Noble Oklahoma Museum of Natural History. They were incredibly generous with their time. You can learn more about the Sam Noble Museum by going to samnoblemuseum.ou.edu. You can also find additional resources on my website, jphilgibsonlab.oucreate.com. On behalf of everyone at Biota who helped pull this episode together, thanks for listening, have a great day, and take very good care of your genetic material. Biota is a production of Under the Juniper Studios. All opinions expressed here are those of the author alone. Thank you.